Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. G'day and welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute at ANU and this podcast is a joint production with the Crawford School of Public Policy and the School of Politics and International Relations. Now, the biggest stories of the year are clearly COVID, China and Trump. And they're pretty closely related, I guess, especially COVID and China, because the outbreak in Wuhan wasn't just the start of a devastating global pandemic. It also marked a pretty sharp downturn in Canberra-Beijing relations. And as we close out 2020... That relationship is being kept at the same temperature as the new Pfizer vaccine being rolled out in Britain right now, which is to say about minus 70 degrees. Beijing has found several ways to express its umbrage at Australia's front-running push for an inquiry into the origins of the virus, its banning of Huawei, the 5G uh, provider, and a list of other slights, most notably via punitive trade decisions, a complete cessation of government-to-government dialogue, And of course, explosively through Twitter only last week, the platform of choice for autocrats the world over. So with Australia's most important economic relationship in tatters, a genuine question arises. Has this situation been mismanaged? Dr. Maria Teflaga, political scientist, lecturer, all-round top thinker, for something that's got a fair degree of high, a fairly high degree of political bipartisanship here in Australia, it doesn't seem like... Australia's really got a plan here for the management of this relationship, doesn't it? Well, I had to throw me a tough question straight up. Um, hello, I just want everyone. you to fix it straight away. Yeah, yeah, just, just, I just get the cookbook out. Yeah, no, I think, I think what is kind of interesting about the the relationship here is that this is this is not a problem that has just appeared um, this year. Um, you know, China has actually been sort of. Doing these kind of uh, trade pauses for for a few years now, I think I think it dates to some of the actions around Huawei. But I think you're absolutely right. Um, 
if you sort of look at how domestic politics is sort of framed in Australia, foreign politics is just this sort of thing that happens somewhere else. The foreign minister, it seems like it's only their job. And most political leaders come to the job of prime minister sort of saying things like, well, I don't really care about foreign policy. I, you know, I care about education or I care about the fair go or, or I care about preserving the weekend or whatever it is. <laughs> I was with Julia Gillard standing near her when uh, she did her first overseas trip and I remember standing in Brussels uh, as she uh, uttered those kinds of words where she said, look, I don't really want to be a foreign policy prime minister or, you know, her words were along those lines, you know, I prefer to be in a classroom talking to kids or whatever it is, you know, communicating the Australian policy. And I think she was trying to say at that stage, she was trying to sort of mark herself out in contradistinction to the globetrotting foreign policy wonkish Kevin Mm -hmm. Rudd. She wanted to say, I'm a sort of a nuts and bolts person, but there was, it was widely criticised from the get-go really as saying, well, you've taken the job as prime minister and you actually need to understand uh, you know, international relations, uh, you know, diplomacy, all of these things. And I think that's a very common trait in, in Australian politics. I mean, Rudd is obviously the exception that proves the rule. Keating is perhaps another prime minister that came to the job with a fair degree of sophistication around foreign policy, but he'd been treasurer for, you know, almost a decade prior um, to that. And, I, you know, as someone who effectively does study domestic politics comparatively, um, you know, the controversy has around China has revealed to myself just how poor my foreign policy literacy is. And I think that's kind of reflected in how we discuss it. And and if we look at the sort of tone of a lot of coverage around this issue over the last year, it's or even the last few years, it's sort of been mostly like Oh, we'll just ignore it. We can, we can, you know, chew gum and, and walk at the same time. We can sit on the fence or it's very alarmist, you know, like, um, we have all of these foreign interference problems and, and the sky is falling. And, and the reality is, is that neither of these two positions are actually sustainable because the reality is, is that we're going to have to learn to, um, live in a more complicated world because of our, geography like there's just literally no escaping it for us yeah it's like a bipolar world uh with with um china emerging as that other center of power and of course it's in our geographical region it's certainly in our economic region we've got a couple of great china experts really here to talk with us as well professor jane golly who is director of the australian center on china in the world uh, jane welcome back thank you great to have you and Yung Zhang, who is editor of the China Story blog at the Australian National University and a director of China Policy Centre. Welcome, Yun. Hello. So, as Maria was just saying, it's really interesting the the diplomatic dimensions of all of this. I mean, arguably, China kind of invented diplomacy. Um, uh, uh, Jane, first to you, do you think we're sort of at the diplomatic level looking at at this all of these features of this relationship? And then, and then looking at through that diplomatic frame, we're seeing diplomacy done quite differently at the moment. But have we been party to a, to a deterioration because of, I don't know, uh, perhaps there's been a degree of right wing virtue signaling going on in Australia, you know, talking to the base. We, we accuse the Chinese of excessive nationalism, but are we perhaps adding to the problem by playing the nationalist card ourselves just within, you know, with democratic clothes on? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that, you know, there are a lot of, diplomats who I have huge respect for and the one that springs to mind immediately is Francis Adamson. So it's certainly not the case that all of DFAT or all of our diplomats are practising what's been referred to recently as megaphone diplomacy or my favourite, um, that 
Professor Louise Edwards used this week was to describe it as buff head diplomacy. Yes, you know, getting right. on the loudspeaker across national television in English from the lodge and having a prime minister demand an apology mm. uh, to China, and, and this is about obviously the the tweet by Zhao Lijian. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to me anyway as the right way to achieve your goals. I mean, I think we need to talk more about what those goals are, but the only conclusion I could reach on that particular front was that it was a nationalistic play to a domestic populace who perhaps enjoys seeing a chest-beating prime minister making a really loud call rather than using all of the diplomatic skills that we've got in DFAT, and I've met many of them, and going through those quieter softer channels, uh, you know, that perhaps might have a more feminist undertone, but more broadly, uh, just a little bit softer and quieter. Yeah, well, Frances Adamson, of course, is a former um, ambassador to mm. Beijing from Australia. So she's she's uh, got very applied knowledge of working in Beijing and, and uh, working with the, the Chinese administration. I know we can't speak for her as, as a matter of fact, but it, it didn't feel like I mean, going to your point about Scott Morrison hitting back against this relatively junior, you know, low-level bureaucratic person tweeting, trolling Australia effectively, it didn't immediately suggest to me that this was a direct function of advice, the sort of advice that would come up through DFAT to the Prime Minister. This felt a bit more visceral and a bit more instant. I'm trying to figure out who would have given that advice. You know, I've been trolled pretty hard on Twitter and I've gone to the ANU media team to seek advice on how best to respond to that. In fact, they've come to me to stop the train wreck that might have unfolded otherwise and said, back away, take a break. That's the best way to deal with these things. Um, he must have known that and his media advisors must have also surely thought that through. And so they've got another motivation and we're all left racking our brains trying to figure out what it was. Um, but I well, don't think it, it was... Simple as, isn't it as simple, though, as, you know, because there's a current of opinion that China will not respect countries that do not stand up for themselves. And this was really just a case of you've made a, a, um, a deliberate, irresponsible uh, insult, a slight against the, the honour of Australia and the, uh, you know, the integrity of Australian defence forces, you know, slashing the throat of a child, the image that was, uh, you know, created for that tweet. It we cannot let it stand. I mean, you. What, what what's your interpretation of it? Is it was it uh, just the prime minister going straight with gut feeling, or do you think there was uh, it was part of a pattern? I think there is definitely a sense that he went with gut feeling. One we know that when after the tweet appeared, it only took him less than an hour to yeah. arrange a press conference. Yeah, so that's a very, minutes. very short period of time. And I highly doubt that he, during that time, he got advice uh, from the public service for that. And the one thing we need to remember, and that's often missing international reporting about the incident, is that the prime minister was involved in the whole um, report whole issue about um, Australian Defence Force in Afghanistan, he publicly came out um, pretty much contradicting the chief of Defence Force. And that's quite a big deal in Australia domestically, usually have very consistent messaging. So he was under a lot of pressure domestically, under a lot of controversy. Um, so when um, 
Zhao Lijian, the Chinese diplomat, tweeted that I think he probably reacted very strongly because of the domestic sentiments at the time. Now, a cynical take would be that he might have done that to shift、um, media attention away from himself. But the, I guess, either case, because of the domestic controversy, he probably had, and he probably had、um, a more instant reaction to that, and that's probably why he did what he did. Um, and before we were talking about, you know,、um, different prime minister how they manage domestic versus international. I think compared to other prime ministers before him,、um, Scott Morrison as a prime minister is much more domestically focused and probably less concerned about international ramifications of the actions. Now, of course, that also because the fact that. Recent years, there has been more linkages between foreign and domestic policy, whereas in the past, perhaps there's more of a clean break. So it is now a harder issue to manage as well. I think what Scott Morrison's reaction, which I, I, I agree, like within 45 minutes, it's hard. It's hard to think that he might have had time to kind of cool down and, and fully assess. Is that he definitely raised the stakes, right, and, and the and the risk profile of what. He did like anything he he would have done by getting personally involved would escalate、um, this incident,、um, and I guess the thing I actually just don't really understand, and it's perhaps because I don't know enough about diplomacy, but I don't really understand why he asked for things that he would never get. Like,、um, you know, like I can see how he, he might be trying to placate a domestic audience by demanding an apology, but I don't really understand, and perhaps someone can explain this to me: the strategic value of asking for. Asking for an apology that the Chinese government will never give,、uh, particularly from like a, a low-level official, official who is nowhere near the status as the prime minister, like that doesn't seem to be what it doesn't seem to be very magisterial. I suppose. Yeah, that's a good point. But the the、um, the assessment in Australia, and I'd be interested in in,、uh, in in your views about this. The assessment in Australia about the tweet. Uh, was that it would not have been a, a just a completely a freelancing piece of、uh, propaganda by 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 an official? It would have because、uh, th- th- this person would effectively lose their job or have their career severely curtailed if they were doing so. So, in other words, Australia's assessment was: yes, this guy is what was he、um, deputy director of foreign affairs as a, a sort of a middle order diplomat. Um, but the the theory that Australia brought to it was yes, but he's speaking officially for China, and therefore this is a they, they, China. Sorry, Australia treated the tweet like an announcement from Beijing, and it wasn't an announcement from Beijing. I think we should be clear about that. Nor was it something that he just freelanced away. There's grey lines in between, and no sensible official is going to tweet something that they know would be disapproved of at the top. Because then they'd lose their jobs, so it, there's a grey area there. But what I'm kind of most troubled by is the fact that we are here and across the press all through the week. I'm being asked to explain why I think the tweet happened as it did.、Mm. You know, this was a cartoon. I mean, I think it's actually. Dare I say, and I can't help but be provocative in these things—a little bit、um, of a clever、Provoked、play、way. going onto Twitter. You know, Donald Trump's perf- preferred platform for. Tweeting out all sorts of atrocities,、mm. like his cartoons about the kung flu and all those things that he targets at China through the year. No one stands up and has a problem with that. Then a Chinese low-level official 
does something similar, again, using this Western platform, you know, ironic that it's blocked in China, but even that, going to the biggest audience and basically criticising Australia for what is an abhorrent human rights abuse. Uh, And I don't know the full details of the case and all the stories that are coming out of Afghanistan, but why are we talking about the tweet and not the human rights abuse that the ADF has committed? And there's the Chinese, I think, coming in and calling some double standards, some hypocrisy. We are continually and vocally demanding that they improve their human rights treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and that is a horrific abuse. We're continually pointing out all sorts of their shortcomings, and here they have an opportunity to do it back to us. And there I am again sounding just a little bit like I'm on their side, but I do see that point of view. I think the double standards are atrocious. And I think we should be talking, well, not on a case about China, but, you know, that was the issue that perhaps Morrison was deflecting away from, not our own abuse, but back to, oh, aren't the Chinese pretty awful and terrible? Well, if you're going to uh, take the risk of being seen to be standing on this, uh, I'll take the risk for the purpose of this debate of being seen to be defending Morrison on this score, or, or, or Australia, if we look at it, because there's a degree of, high degree of political bipartisanship, at least in terms of the reaction to that tweet. You know, Labor was similarly appalled and, and disgusted and, and so forth. Um, the argument, of course, is that the Afghanistan uh, crimes um, that uh, seem to have been committed and which will be the subject of legal proceedings have been revealed by Australian government processes and brought out and that, and it will be Australian government processes that lead to prosecutions of those people and, uh, and, and, and a range of other sanctions that will apply, including a whole number of people who've already been given notice and, uh, you know, will lose their jobs and so forth. That's the comparison mm. that Australia sees. Yes, we've had some people do some bad things in our uniform. We've, we've done a four year investigation into this. We've exposed it publicly. It's not comfortable for us to do so, but it's necessary for the processes of of uh, getting to the bottom of this and and prosecuting those people. Mm. That's the contrast that Australia sees with, uh, for example, the one you cite. Um, you know that the Chinese don't even admit to the human rights atrocities they're committing against the Uyghurs. I am ready um, for this debate, first of all, to make the point that I'm not standing on the side of Beijing, but rather saying that I can see where they're coming from. Uh, I think there is a double standard that comes out here. And I heard a number of people make that same, um, give that same reasoning this week, Mark. It was, but we've owned up to that mistake. Uh, it was also this week that I saw the US-EU joint communication report that was released, uh, which opens up with a declaration of our shared history, our shared values and our shared interests. Uh, and it goes on to describe the EU and the US combined as the globally unrivaled power. Uh, and when I hear that, and I might be the only one, but I hope that I'm not. When I think about our shared history, that shared history to me uh, includes imperialism, colonialism, extermination of Indigenous people on lands admittedly in the past. But at what point do we really get to turn around and say, we've owned up to that, so therefore it's okay, they're non-transparent and it's not? I just think there are shades of grey in there again that mean we're a little bit more like them than we like to admit. Yeah, I think on that... um, Perhaps we're a little bit too positive about Australia's openness and transparency. We know that the whistleblower that started the investigation 
is still um, under prosecution. Yeah, as I understand. And it was basically the Australian Defence Force and Australian government was almost forced to do the investigation. And I agree. You know, we are definitely compared to China, we're definitely much more transparent, much more accountable. We are a democracy. There is a difference,、um, but、uh, we do need to remember that we are not doing the best we can.、Um, Also, we just go back to the diplomat Zhao Lijian. So he is very well known for being deliberately provocative and inflammatory on Twitter. This、mm. is not、um, the first time he's done this. Well, this is the platform for loose cannons, really, isn't it? <laughs> well, yes.、Um, I think he actually takes. The, he basically sees Donald Trump style of tweeting and basically follows that, and it actually earned him a promotion、um, this year. So one, he's not a loose cannon. He he's definitely you know、um, representing the Chinese government, but he is low level, and we need to remember that he's doing that deliberately to basically bait Australia. And we、yeah. took the bait hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, I mean, it does appear that way. From from my perspective, like like if with a, when you've got、um, a, a serious、um, and internationally significant war crimes. Sets of allegations in a democratic country, in a war that went on for twenty years, it kind of seems predictable to me that the less savoury countries in the world will、uh, take absolute delight in pointing the finger at democratic countries、mm. because it's this is this is literally not the first time <clears throat> this has happened. I mean, the USSR used to talk about、um, African American、mm. civil rights all the time as just one of many examples of the way that、um, countries enjoy deflecting、uh, from themselves. And onto the others, and I guess that's why I sort of—I guess I am sort of surprised that、uh, by Australia's reaction. I mean, was this was this, you know, like I, and trying to sort of unpick whether or not this was an emotional kind of response, responding to perhaps how actors in the room felt at the time, or you know, pivoting、um, into domestic、um, politics, or if this was part of a sort of deliberate strategy that the government had decided would. Would be its modus operandi should such a fairly predictable kind of, you know, perhaps not particularly in a tweet with a cartoon, but this kind of criticism coming Australia's way. Yeah, the other thing is,、uh, and I think an excellent point there.、Right? The other thing is that、um, one wonders the extent to which it is just simply driven by, you know, the hawks inside the party room who、uh, the prime minister needs to be. Uh, mindful of, there's a growing number of kind of anti-China hawks on both sides of politics and in, in and in the media as well. And these people are are creating a lot of, you know, consciousness and pressure around this China question. So the prime minister suddenly responds to this. You know, there's this there's this thumb in the eye from this low level official, and 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 you know, you're slagging off our troops, and the PM comes out all guns blazing. It it really does. Raise the question about what you know, which goes back to your primary question. I think, Mary, what what the hell were we hoping to get out of this? I mean, you make a number of demands that you pretty sure from the off are not going to be、uh, you know conceded to,、um, and you then have to ask the question. And this surely is a primary question in all diplomacy: what are we looking、mm. to get out of whatever contact we're having now? Surely. It seems to me one option would have been to not respond to the tweet at all, at least not prime ministerially, prime ministerially,、uh, and、uh, and 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 perhaps to just dismiss it as something you know a function of that that outrageous you know loose platform that is Twitter. Just say, oh well, Twitter. But what what some official says on Twitter doesn't interest me, and move on. Perhaps let someone else 
respond to it? <laughs> yeah, the I think the normal course of action is for the secretary to call in an ambassador and send a strong message or condemn. Uh, a condemnation, which I believe the secretary has already done.、Mm-hmm. Um, next level will be for the minister for foreign affairs to release a press statement, and those are pretty, you know, normal responses. But、um, yeah, emergency press conference is definitely an overreaction. Yeah. Well, depending on what you think the end game is, and I think that's. In some ways, the most alarming thing for me is trying to think through what it is, and the only thing that we that I can come up with, again, given that you don't think he's going to get an apology, that it is going to annoy Beijing even more. Again,、uh, I think the strategy is led by the anti-China hawks, as you call them, Mark.、Um, you know, is about signalling to the rest of the world and to Beijing that we're not at all happy with them in return, and that we're. Banding together with the five eyes, with the alliance, you know, this has coincided with that EU US statement that I've mentioned.、Uh, it could have actually worked in Morrison's favour if the long game is, as the Beijing officials have said, as Alexander Downer said,、um, you know, now nearly a decade ago. If you want to, if you make China, Beijing the enemy, they will become the enemy. And to me, that、Whatever、strategy that actually starts work. Well, no, the what it means, I think, in current terms, a lot of people don't like the term containment, but it is one way of looking at it, or at least a bifurcated system where China is on the other side. And a good example that came out of this, again, which might have worked to Morris in Morrison's favour, was the interparliamentary alliance on China's video. I don't know how many people saw it, or if you can provide the link to it, but basically, all of I think some seventeen countries now two hundred MPs signed up, and they were all basically advertising their own liquor. The Japanese saying Japanese sake is the best, and American guy saying we love you know Napa Valley Pinot, and <laughs>、um, they're all doing. A plug for their own, but say, but this week we're going to be nice to our Australian friends and drink Australian wine instead. Now, I don't think that's going to really save the Australian wine market because not enough French people are going to buy our、mm. wine. But it does send a pretty tough signal to Beijing that says, if you keep going with this, we're going to get together with our mates and we're going to go hard at you. And I don't know. Maybe that's Prime Minister Morrison's strategy because I can't come up with another set of reasons that explain quite how things have unfolded the way they have this year, and that worries me. We know that today、um, there was news that Canada ex- is exporting more coal to China because of the fact that Australia is no longer <laughs> exporting more coal to China. So I very much doubt, and I. That、um, this kind of alliance、uh, would really make much of a difference, and I don't think that is really the prime minister's intention. I think his intention is more focused on domestic.、Um, yeah, just to be hairy chested about it,、optics. really. Yeah, 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 exactly. I, I don't think he really thought it's not a great strategy for the long term. <laughs> just、no. to be hairy chested. No, but <laughs> in my view, Australian politicians don't think long term. They think to the next election, which、yes. is probably about this time next year. Another great、um, joy of democracy. Yeah, isn't it brilliant?、Um, <laughs> we, we, hopefully, that's what we have.、Uh, that, you know, such brilliant diplomats that you were talking about for, and such good officials in so many areas of the public service. Um, and indeed, in the academy and elsewhere, to, you know, people to think longer term because our politicians、uh, frequently don't show a huge capacity for doing that. Let's take a quick break and come back and continue this discussion in just a moment.
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now... One question that seems to me quite primary in all of this is, you know, should we really be surprised at China applying this pressure on Australia? When you think about it, Australia really led the world on its resistance to Huawei and the involvement in the 5G network. We've had our foreign interference laws, which the government admits were, um, you know, really had to be sort of done from scratch because there was no real model anywhere around the democratic world. We've had, of course, the, uh, the, the call this year for the international inquiry into the origins of the virus in Wuhan, which Australia led and, and, and essentially announced, um, you know, on, in, via the media. And of course, Australia's been very vocal on the Uyghurs, as we've discussed, on Hong Kong, on the South China Sea, on questioning the Belt and Road Initiative. And we've got, you know, those uh, foreign affairs powers, that bill that's currently in the parliament that would give the Commonwealth control over a whole number of different relation, different level relationships that Australian governments, uh, councils, state governments, local councils, universities and other organisations might have with uh, with Chinese counterparts, you know, the Commonwealth taking over that or at least having the veto power on that. So there's a whole lot of architecture, it seems to me, that adds up to Australia being a front runner here. Now, the China hawks would say that's a great thing, but um, but even they would have to surely concede that when you roll all that up together, which is no doubt what the Chinese do, they say, here is a country that is essentially front-running resistance to Beijing. And it just happens to be the country that is most dependent on income from the things we buy from them. Uh, you know, the maths on that don't seem to be all that complex. Well, I think, I think you know, one, it's obviously our, our economic interests. But, but two, I think, again, it goes to our geography and our size. Uh, you know, I, th- I think... The United States and, and Europe as a combined project have sort of been able to, um, kind of ignore, uh, the rise of China in a way that, that hasn't been possible here, even for a country disinterested in, in foreign politics. Um, and of course, you know, in recent years, the, the emphasis or focus on, on China, um, has been pretty negative, um, and relating to foreign interference in, in political, um, Political circles and, um, further to that, to, to donations in, into politics, which, um, from property developers in effect, from large, I think the two largest donors, private donors in, in Australia in the recent years, uh, before these foreign interference and donation laws came into place were actually two Chinese, 
uh, billionaires and Chinese Australian uh, billionaires. E- exactly, as distinct from Clive Palmer, who's who knows what. Uh, well, indeed, um, who clearly doesn't have any um, financial interests of any kind, um, <laughs> of any kind at all. And um, good but, point. Exactly, um, and that that has been really difficult for. Um, both uh, two major political parties and it's actually sort of seen heads um, roll on on both sides of of politics. And so I guess the point I am trying to make is that perhaps one of the reasons why Australia is at the forefront of uh, this dispute is simply for the fact that um, it has been unable to, I guess, ignore the rise of China in a way that um, other countries Mm. have been able to focusing on their own sort of regional um, politics. And that was one of the things that really struck me uh, the last time I was in the United Kingdom. Um, uh, You know, like there is no discussion of China in the United (laughs) Kingdom, which is odd given that stepping out of the EU means that they actually need to engage with all of these questions. Yeah, especially Um, if they're hiding behind WTO rules. They they actually need the WTO to actually have a high level of of buy-in, really. And if the largest new player on the strategic stage, which is an economic giant in China, is um, loose about the rules, then a country like Britain that's decided to rather foolishly go it alone – as you say, they need China to. Uh, that's right, and they've behave. had their own problems with Huawei themselves. Um, yeah, well, they've blinked on that, haven't they? Exactly. Because they initially said okay to Huawei, and then they in the periphery. Yeah, and pretty- the, yeah, that's right. But now they've pulled back from that, right? Yeah. So, well, with with lots of intelligence supplied by the US and Australia, a lot no of doubt. pressure from Australia as well. And I guess Beijing can see that. Um, one of the pieces. So, go on, you know? So exactly that that point is that. Um, you know, when we do all these things, then we should be expecting that China would respond because our decisions on Huawei in that we're trying to get other people to follow us, our decision on foreign investment. From China's perspective, we are basically um, being against their economic interests mm. and therefore they respond so that our economic interests also suffer. So we should be expecting that this would have happened. Now, from some um, sections within, um, you know, I uh, think Tang say that, oh, well, China, what China is doing is against its uh, trade agreements, against WTO rules, which is also true. But um, China sees itself as a great power. And it thinks that, and looks at other great powers, which is the United States, <laughs> How could really? it possibly come to this conclusion? <laughs> and it sees that, you know, great powers, um, what they do is they follow rules when they want and they discard rules when they don't want. Exactly. And that They've is got a good precisely teacher. what China is doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, goes, it takes me back to the tweet, actually. What, what One response would have been for the Prime Minister, if he had to comment on it. I mean, one theory, for example, was that he would get questions from journalists or he would get questions in Parliament about the tweet um, and therefore he had to say something. Now, I don't fully buy that, but let's assume that that's true. One response in those questions could have been to use that moment to say something positive about the leadership in contradistinction to the utterings of a, utterances of an official on Twitter. In other words, to say, well, look, this is a low-level uh, uh, diplomat. I, I, w- I would imagine this has caused some embarrassment in Beijing. They, you know, they they invented diplomacy. You know, blah blah. blah. You know, some mm. sort of mm-hmm. some sort of recognition of their maturity, uh, and that presumably this is an embarrassment there as well, and laugh it off like that. And that might have been 
deft diplomacy. What, taking the high ground? I mean, it does sound like a pretty good idea well, as you're it, presenting it, Mark. It, well, it does. I mean, I would have been happy to give this advice, but no one rang me. <laughs> they should have asked Go you. Figure. <laughs> All right. So, look, let's, uh, let's move on to how this is playing in Australia, right? I mean, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, the decisions that have been made here and how China's looking at it. What, what do you think, Jane, about the nature of the debate in Australia? As someone who's had a lot to say yourself, you're called upon a lot by media to, to opine on these various tensions, the, these events that occur, it, it, it's pretty uncivil, isn't it? Look, it's been a pretty ugly year. Um, it does make you think really carefully about what you say and often with journalists I will ask them to send uh, what I've said to them and they've typed up themselves and I'd you know, generally like to be able to see that to make sure that they have got the wording right because when it goes um, badly and sometimes you know they don't get it perfectly right and then that can backfire. I get pounced on still. Uh, I was pounced on just today on Twitter mm. uh, for something you know that was actually a misrepresentation of what I'd said. Um, but I think, you know, to look on the bright side of that, it is good for ensuring that you're really clear in your own mind about these things that are inherently really difficult to be clear about. I mean, I do find myself grappling every day with why would he tweet? Where is this going to go? What is the end game? What are we going to get out of it? But I always come back to, or at least something that's always with me is uh, the question actually of Australia's geography and of where I think the world is headed. And that is really important for me. And I don't, we know, we don't all see the world the same way, but I think we are living in the Asian century, you know, to come back to Julia Gillard, who was focusing domestically for the large part, but did still manage to come out with that white paper on the Asian century. I grew up believing in the Asian century. And now as an economist with 25 years of education and study behind me, that is how I see the future. And that absolutely shapes how I think these things through because I do, I don't even want to say believe anymore. I think pretty strongly that China is going to be the biggest economy in the world and the most powerful in the region. And I think that should alter how you play your game. Sitting here at the bottom of Asia as a 26 million strong population, you know, just one city, Shenzhen, comes pretty close to that. We're pretty tiny in the and grand scheme Australians of things. I couldn't tell you where Shenzhen was on a map. I mean, it's 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 extraordinary the number of cities, the huge cities that they have that people have. I mean, I suspect most people had never heard of Wuhan before well, coronavirus. I'd say 99% of Australians, and that's, you know, not to be condescending, but China's a huge place. Yeah. And I mean, just to go there and travel around and I've been doing it for 20 years, it never fails to astonish me each time, whether it's back in Beijing for the 30th time or out in Xi'an, you know, after a 10-year gap, the size of the place, the dynamism, the the high-rise buildings, the wealth, you know, the the shopping centres that I can't even bear to look in, even with a pretty nice academic salary, you know, but can't even step foot in. You need to see yeah, that country to understand what the future is going to look like. And as Yun said, a part of that future is that great powers break the rules. Uh, we don't have as much capacity to do that, although I will note that we have give it a good crack as well, um, you know, say <laughs> with with using the rules to suit us when, when we need them to. But I don't think enough Australians are fully grappling with what the future will look like. 
Is there, you know, do you think there's a sort of a sense here of people trying, I mean, even if they don't articulate it in exactly this way, even to themselves, but a kind of a mindset of wishing this weren't the case? I mean, the point Jane makes is absolutely uh, correct and undeniable. This is a giant economy and getting bigger and getting more powerful. It is the locus of power in this region, uh, balanced only by the United States. And, you know, if we had another term of Trump, who knows how much smaller that could have got. Um, and uh, so, you know, we have to have a much more realistic assessment of it. China's not going away. It's a question of how do we manage our relationship to be best for us. And it's a little bit hard to see that we're managing it. I know it's a very difficult assignment. I'm not trying to apologize mm. for a whole range of overreactions by, by Beijing or, 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 or um, capricious acts. Nor am I. Well, there is a lack of um, Asian literacy and Asian understanding in Australia. Now, we talk about the Asian Century white paper. You'll be hard-pressed to find the copy these days. And we know that there is a significant um, underinvestment in um, understanding Asia in general. Um, the uptake of Asian languages is still declining, despite how important China is. You think that everyone will be trying to learn Mandarin. But uh, nowadays, apparently, fewer and fewer people are doing that um, because they see that um, learning a language is not really that important. Um, for, of course, we can people say, okay, well, we have a lot of um, migrant populations, um, Chinese diaspora in Australia, who perhaps can fill this knowledge gap. But we're not really using those people um, in places where we can take advantage of their knowledge. For example, we know that the public service is, is very, very, what's the word, undiverse. Mm. The parliament is very, uh, is basically all white, yeah. as my colleague Osmond Chu said. Um, but apparently the Australian public service is even less diverse than the parliament. And when you turn on the TV, you hardly see anyone of Asian appearance on TV either. Um, so one, we're not really creating a future where people understand Asia, but even where we do have people with that capability, we're not really using them either. Can I just put in a little plug for the CIW 2020 annual lecture that was held this last week by yeah. um, Professor Louise Edwards? It really was the best lecture I've heard all year. It was biting and, and depressing in some ways, but just I'd encourage everyone to listen to it. And it was called Five Eyes, One Tongue and Hard of Hearing. And it was about <laughs> Australia's brilliant. lack of Asian literacy and how we've gone backwards on that. But really timely. I just thought she was brilliant. Yeah, well, we, what we'll do is we'll try and put a link to that on our um, on our uh, web page, on our Facebook page, um, and uh, we'll you know so we'll direct people to that because that's uh, that's well worth doing. I think um, this is a really important point, though. I mean, if you look at the the history of Australian um, foreign relations, um, it is sort of punctuated by. Um, you know, looking looking to great protectors first, the United Kingdom, and then after the Second World, the United States, and it's punctuated by these moments of, um, I guess, you know, a great kind of closing towards an external enemy. Um, you know, Germany being a classic example in, in World War One, um, and then uh, the Soviet Union and then the communist menace after the Second World War, and it seems like we're going through a sort of same kind of counter reaction in relation to China. Specifically, but the, the, I mean, I think this debate has to be actually more than just China. It has to be about how it is that we kind of learn to sort of talk about the region because 
it's all good and well to say, well, we need to build a coalition of like-minded countries in the region. But if you if you can't um, have this kind of conversation, if you can't have a sophisticated conversation, which actually does mean it, listening to points of view that make us feel uncomfortable, um, you know, having people express opinions that perhaps may enrage you, right? <laughs> and listening and, um, to subtlety too. Not everything's a precisely. binary. Precisely. Yeah. Well, that's I think that's exactly right. I mean, we're we're about to move into a far more uncertain and complex um, world for many reasons, right? It's not just the rise of China. It's also climate change, the unknown effects of this pandemic on the on the global economy. And frankly, we're just at the end of a 35-year policy cycle, right? So yeah. lots of reasons why things are going to, to be um, changing. And it sort of does behoove our, our politicians to and us as citizens, to be blunt, to um, step up our game and to be prepared to um, listen and to mm. be prepared to civilly disagree because there is actually no right answer. It's a question of trade-offs. That's that's what we have to decide on. So when I was in public service and I wrote all these uh, talking points for when uh, our ministers go meet with their counterparts, it always struck me that a lot of the talking points is about, you know, we are telling people, uh, our counterparts in Asia, what to do. We're telling them, oh, did you know that there is a China that is uh, getting more and more powerful and assertive and you should really be wary of that? But really, you know, they've been living next to China for, well, much longer than we have and they know much more about China than we do. But instead, we get this sense that, okay, we know best. Um, you just all have to listen to us. Um, you don't really know what you do. What well, we've just doing. shown what experts we are at managing it. It's all going so well. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on how you measure it, I'm, I'm wondering. <laughs> I'm wondering whether whether you think there's perhaps both of you can address this question. Whether uh, you think there's anything in the way of back channel communication going on at the moment? There's much print, uh, you know, centimeters given over to talking about how ministers can't get their counterparts on the phone. The the, the uh, obviously the top level of government, there's no contact. And there are these checks, as I mentioned before, about to come in on a whole range of other partnership agreements that, that may or may not be able to be signed. But is there, I mean, we're talking about some economy, two economies here that are, are rather enmeshed in a lot of ways. I mean, we're, you know, huge, uh, export income coming to Australia from the commodities we send there. There's uh, many, many people to people links in the wine industry, for example, people and all of those different export areas. But wine's a great example in, in the last decade or two of, of where people have established incredibly strong personal bonds with uh, their counterparts in China and and that's why they're so shattered apart from the income it's just you know all that work that they've done's turned out to just come to nothing i'm wondering is there back channel communication that could go on here that might be able to free up um the the freeze uh, thaw the freeze if i could put it like that well there's always um uh, interaction between the two governments, even um, on official level, we know that you know it's hard to ministers um, to arrange a meeting, mm. but or even the, have a phone conversation. Yes, yeah. but the officials are still meeting um, each other. Um, that's still going on, and of course, um, it often happens at the sideline of international meetings, such as G20. And that's one of the problems, isn't it? Because we've had COVID, we yes. haven't had all those incidental yes. contacts that happen at those big, yes. big multilateral meetings. That, that's exactly right. Those sideline meetings are often the most important meetings at international meetings, yes. rather than the plenary meetings themselves. Yeah. Um, but 
on top of that, you've got still people-to-people links. There's the business people that are still engaging with each other. Um, unfortunately, you know, with, due to COVID, there's less travel. There are uh, fewer students and tourists. Mm. But those things are still going on. Um, unfortunately, it does not seem to have any impact at the political level. Do you think we're at rock bottom of this uh, um, at the moment or is there further to fall? Uh, obviously, the, the, the big one is the $80 billion iron ore export. Will they touch that? I think it definitely can get worse, but that but it's partly because there's actually still looking like there's a fair bit of resilience in the trading relationship. So as Yun's saying, you know, even if they're not meeting at that top level, uh, I've still got contacts and friends, you know, colleagues in Beijing, in Shenzhen, across China saying, look, business is still going on as usual. I think they're starting to feel less popular. Uh, they're no longer sort of greeted with that, wow, you're Australian. Mm. That's getting tougher. And that's what could really get worse from here is that those trading links do start to fall apart. But through to this point, I think there's been a fair bit of resilience in it. And in fact, the numbers that I and other people have been tracking show that. But another level of interaction that I think could play a positive role is through uh, not the federal government, but state and local government. So as an example, uh, just two weeks ago, I was attended along with about 25 other people, a celebration of the Beijing-Canberra 20-year sister city anniversary. And Kate Carnell, our former uh, chief minister, gave a keynote address, but it was actually a really friendly uh, and we were encouraged just to have nice conversation with these, you know, range of individuals across the room. And it was a really friendly one, but also an opportunity and a rare one in this year to be in person listening to the business people celebrating their links and their ongoing links. You know, they looked across to the hill and said, don't worry about what's going on up up there, seeing Parliament House Mm. in the distance Mm. as we could out the window, Um, but actually still recognising, you know, those people-to-people links, some of them translating into dollars, but others actually just being about friendship uh, Mm. and human beings enjoying each other's company. That gives me some hope. Well, it does give hope, but I guess this all this shows us a fairer element, uh, perhaps a bigger element than we realised, of sovereign risk associated with all of these investments. If uh, if China at the central level can turn off the tap, can simply suspend these uh, export lines, then if you're investing a lot of money in it, uh, you, you're going to be wary about that in the future. Uh, and I guess that's a function of the nature of the Chinese system uh, and indeed, the, just the sheer staggering power economically that China has, uh, that it realizes it can use that leverage, and that's what it's been doing, and that uh, it's it's making it very uncomfortable for Australia. So businesses, I think, are learning more and more about geopolitics or geoeconomics. Um, Will they be diversifying as a result? I mean, uh, you know, everyone talks about diverse, diversification now. Try and have export lines going to other. Other places, it's not of course, as- it's um, easier for certain sectors to diversify than yeah. other sectors. Um, but at least, if the tension, if the trade sanctions continue, then the end result will be a more diversified Australian economy because the sectors that will be reliant on Chinese market will shrink, and the sectors that, as a result, the shrink, the sectors that don't do that will expand. Um, so, unbalancing. If it continues, then the Australian economy will be more diversified away from China. Mm, by necessity. Final question, Jane. Um, 
Do you, what does this tell us about the changing nature of uh, Xi Jinping's leadership uh, of the Chinese Communist Party, the way China is going to see itself going forward? Because uh, there are concerns that uh, this is this is a you know quite a different China from you mentioned before uh, Julia Gillard, or you could go even back to Paul Keating thirty years ago talking about security in Asia rather than security from Asia. Um, but China, the character of China, does appear to be changing as it as it emerges into this global, uh, you know, technical superpower, or more than technical, I guess, you know, economic and strategic superpower. I don't know when the turning point will be pinned down to when we look back on history, but I'd I'd go with two thousand and seventeen or two thousand and eighteen, uh, the end of that, when Xi Jinping, you know, famously stood up and announced that he would. Changed the constitution. Um, we didn't quite announce it like that, but so that he would be the ruler for life. Yeah. If that's what he so chose. Uh, and what we've seen, not really back to that point, but earlier is this trend, you know, and it's unidirectional of an increasingly authoritarian, strong man, top down, centralized, repressive regime, which has been distressing for mm. many of us to watch, including many inside of China. Mm. Um, it's not the direction that most people wanted China to head in, uh, and it has got a lot to do with Xi Jinping's own character and how he sees the future of China. Uh, but he's not going to live forever, and we know that there is dissent from within. We know that it's repressed dissent at this point, but I don't like to assume that this is the same direction that China will head on forever. And we still then left with the question of how best can the rest of the world engage with them or disengage with them to ensure a more positive outcome, you know, for all of the people across China, for those in Tibet, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, uh, and across the rest of the 1.4 billion strong population as well. So lots of really tough questions that don't have answers and that I grapple with. Again, there's the word, you know, do we disengage to send a signal? Do we stand up and demand an apology to try and change their behavior? How do we interact with a global superpower that is known to do things very differently from we do? We might want to start by trying to understand them as much as we can. And that means opening the books and studying pretty hard. Mm. Yes, very good thought. Look, thanks so much for, for that. It's been a really great conversation, really enjoyed it, and uh, I guess we could talk uh, at some length, and I imagine we will be talking at some length about this in the future, but uh, certainly uh, we'll see where this current crisis goes in the next uh, in the next little while. It doesn't feel like it's going anywhere good. So thank you to Jane Golly, Yun Jung, and to Maria Taflaga, as always, uh, for being on Democracy Sausage. Now, We've really enjoyed bringing you this podcast each week, in fact, twice weekly, and we've had very encouraging feedback via Twitter and Facebook and in many other ways. Uh, I've certainly been contacted a number of times and run into people who who enjoy the podcast, and that's all very rewarding. But I'd be really interested to know from you if you think twice a week is too frequent, if you find you don't get through one and there's already another one in your inbox, for example, or perhaps you'd like to see more, I don't know. But... um, 
I'd, I'd be interested in getting some feedback about that as we uh, think about how we go about next year. So let us know about that and indeed any other views you have about uh, about Democracy Sausage. It's always good to get that sort of feedback. There's only a couple of episodes left this year and then we'll be taking a break. So um, get in touch with us on the Facebook page or via Twitter or email or however you wish to do it and uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you then. That's it for this week. I'll, I'll talk to you again later in the week. Bye for now. 